Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean makes it super simple to launch a Kubernetes cluster in minutes. The DigitalOcean Kubernetes platform empowers developers to launch their containerized applications into a managed production-ready cluster without having to maintain or configure the underlying infrastructure. They seamlessly integrate everything with the rest of the DigitalOcean stack, including load balancers, firewalls, object storage spaces, and block storage volumes. They even have built-in support for public and private image registries like Docker Hub and Quay.io. Developers can now run and scale container-based workloads with ease with the DigitalOcean platform. Learn more, get started for free with a $50 credit at do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community of Slack with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to GoTime. Today we're talking about compilers and interpreters in Go. Very interesting. Joining me is my co-host from another mother, Mark Bates. Hi, Mark. Hey there, Matthew. How are you doing today? I'm good, sir. And yourself? A little freaked out by the idea that we might somehow be related. Okay, well, I said another mother, so we've not paid attention already. Well, it's not a great start. It, there was still a relationship implied. Yeah, and I okay. don't know how comfortable uh, I feel. <laughs> thank you. That's lovely. <laughs> We're also joined by Tim Raymond. Hello, Tim. Hello. How's it going, Matt? Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good, thanks. Today, by the way, is Tim's birthday, everybody. <laughs> As it is whenever I do anything. So please, <laughs> uh, if you're listening, reach out and uh, wish Tim a very happy birthday. This is a prank Mark Bates plays on Tim Raymond all the time, by the way. I don't so. know what you're talking about. Tim yes. is 21 today. Uh, <laughs> every time we go to a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> We're also joined by, you won't believe this, it's Torsten Ball, author of Writing a Compiler in Go and Writing an Interpreter in Go. Hello, Torsten. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Good. Well, we'll see. Let's reserve judgment for now and we'll <laughs> let us know at the end how it's gone. So let's jump in. Let's talk about it. We're going to talk about compilers and interpreters. First of all, for anybody that doesn't know what that is, maybe we could start off with, uh, you know, what is a compiler? What does it actually do? And why is it useful? Does anyone want to have a stab at that? I think Torsten should, because his books are absolutely amazing at explaining just that theory. Thank you. Like the way I put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the answer is not that easy. <laughs> as in, you know, it depends. It's all blurry. But I would say the easiest explanation for what an interpreter and a compiler is, is it's the implementation of a programming language. It's how you 
make it exist. You can think of a programming language, uh, you can define it to the last detail, but it still doesn't exist. It could only exist on paper or in theory, and you need to implement it, and you can implement it by building an interpreter or a compiler. That's my really concise attempt <laughs> at explaining it. Yeah, that's great. And so in Go's case, then, the Go compiler, of course, takes the Go code, does all its magic to it, and turns it into a binary. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a binary is made up of what? What is actually a binary? Another programming language is in a binary, <laughs> and that is then interpreted by the computer, by the CPU. So it's, uh, as they say, you know, machine languages all the way down, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, the, the end goal is you want to talk to the computer and you want the computer to understand you. And when you, let's say, get the computer from the factory, it only speaks one language. And that language is the machine language that, you know, differs from computer to computer, from CPU to CPU. AMDs speak a different language than ARM CPUs, for example. And in order to not have to talk to the computer in machine language all the time, which is really detailed and really low level, you implement another language in this machine language. So you say, okay, if I give you this five words in machine language, do this. And then you kind of put together piece by piece another language on top of that. So you say, in machine language, I read another language from this file on disk and turn it into this other version in machine language. And then the computer can understand that. And, you know, then you build your way up and then you end up somewhere with Go or even higher JavaScript in the browser or something. The, the interpreter book was the first one you did, right? Right, yeah. And in that, you actually implement the monkey language. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about the monkey language. The monkey language is called monkey language because the tiger language already exists. <laughs> I had to come up with a name for a programming language. And the goal was to kind of have a language that has a bit more meat to it than, say, most example languages used in tutorials, blog posts, whatever. Most of the time, they have a lisp, parentheses, and like they lose 60% of all readers <laughs> at that point. And then they lose another 20% of readers when they say, you know, let's skip parsing for now. Since we have a lisp, we can just you know, split the string on the parentheses or something, and we don't need a parser. And that kind of cuts short on a lot of the stuff that I wanted to learn about when I wanted to learn about programming languages, for example, parsers and how they work. And the language that I wanted to build and then, you know, dissect or teach in this book should have more details like curly braces. You know, back then I thought, you know, curly braces, this is, you know, a real language, I guess, <laughs> uh, not a toy language. Yeah. Now I think differently, but it should look like a real language, like proper intendation, function, like the keywords, intendation, braces, parentheses, and so on. And I kind of pieced this together and then I put the name monkey on it. And, you know, if I had to describe it, it looks kind of like JavaScript. It also acts kind of like JavaScript because under the hood, it actually acts like a scheme or a Lisp thing, which is funnily enough, also what JavaScript was based on in the beginning. 
It's a really small language that has basic data types like integers, arrays, hashes, strings. It has functions, first class functions, higher order functions. I don't know what else off the top of my head. Has a macro system in a separate chapter. Yeah, I named it Monkey because I do like monkeys, I guess. <laughs> and so it's great for not just learning about interpreters, but the fact that you actually implement the real thing, I think, is a great way to learn. But of course, the skills are transferable, aren't they? That's the point. Once you can do this, once you can build an interpreter, then you can use that skill to solve other problems. And Mark, you actually did that very thing from Torsten's book, didn't you? Uh, yeah, so I think there's even a, a quote on <laughs> on the website yeah. of the book. I think the book is amazing. You know, I, as I'm famous for saying, don't have a CS degree. I'm not a computer scientist. You know, I have a degree in music. So the idea of things like parsers and lexers and tokens and interpreters and stuff, that kind of knowledge it was far above my pay grade in terms of just even coming close to understanding it. So when I saw that book, I was like, okay, let me kind of give it a whirl. At the time, we were having problems with templating in Buffalo, too. So I was kind of getting at my tether with some of the other stuff that was out there. And so I was hoping to even just understand what they were doing so I could contribute back to some of these other language, you know, things like Raymond, for example. No pun intended. It was like a weird kind of mustaches, handlebars kind of implementation, wasn't it? Yeah, no, no relation to me. Yeah. <laughs> they like to use panics instead of errors. Nice. It, was, it was wonderful. Uh, so I read it and I'm like, well, I have no hope of actually kind of understanding this, but let's see. And what I loved about the book was it was like right from the beginning, very small chunks, easily tested, right? Every bit was TDD through the entire book. And by the end of the book, I felt apparently overconfident because I went and built plush, <laughs> <laughs> right? But I went from having no idea how these things worked or even what they meant to having a basic fundamental idea, at least, of the theory and what was happening. And when we talk about pegs in a little bit, having this information from Torsten's book and understanding it that way, and then kind of going to pegs, which kind of make a high-level abstraction around parsers, which we'll talk about a lot, um, at least I then understood. So just understanding the theory, I think, is an important part. Even if you're not going to use these tools, like not everybody should or can build a programming language. Like, it's not for, every, like, we don't need a million, they're like routers, we don't need more of them. <laughs> but we'll talk about the one I'm writing later. Yeah, don't worry about it. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You feel like, I, when I first saw this, I thought, this is the most specific book that I could imagine. And I thought, isn't it too niche? But actually, templating is a great example of a case. There are a few other times that I've come across where I would have liked to be able to do these. And I, I solved it just sort of, again, not in the proper way, just kind of minimal effort to try and just get something to work. Regular expression type things. Yeah, although even, yeah, I mean, like that. yeah, even that's... Configuration files that people come up with. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen that a lot. Right, yeah. And Matt Leyer on the Slack, and by the way, if you're listening live, you can join the conversation on Slack. Go for Slack in the hash GoTimeFM channel. Uh, Matt Leyer there <laughs> recommends this, and he's what he was saying is, after he'd been through the book, he then was able to go and sort of add new features to it and play around with it and change things and break things and things like this. And I think 
that for the spirit of learning um that's a really appealing thing to do so i love the fact that yeah. you would actually have your own implementation that you can then play around with yeah the book leaves you in a good place for that too it lets you kind of it gives you what you need to, to go and break it further like matt did or like i did <laughs> i think there is a layer that the book may not address or might need another book to address which is you've written a parser but don't make this where your code actually gets executed and stuff like that uh, which is kind of what happened with plush it became parser executor templating system in one big ball and that caused us too many problems and we'll talk about how we're addressing those later yeah interesting yeah I can listen to this for hours. People saying how nice it was to read the book. <laughs> Don't worry, I've also solicited a lot of hate. I just told you how terrible it was afterwards. No, no, no. You said how terrible it was what you did. <laughs> what I, I didn't put this in the book. Yes, exactly. The second one even, you know, introduces like a bytecode. So there's a neat separation there. Any, I guess. Anybody who knows me, Torsten, will tell you you explicitly have to say, Mark, don't, don't abuse do this. this technology. Yeah. Because I will. <laughs> Try not to release this as a package that's going to end up as a dependency in lots of Matt Ryer's projects. <laughs> I wanted to go back to, you know, the starting point here that was you start out thinking, this is really specific. How can I possibly reuse this knowledge? And for me, at least, and, you know, it sounds like you guys would confirm this. What happened was after it clicked for you and how, after you understand how parsing works, for example, then you suddenly see it everywhere. Then you can go, okay, now, oh, now I know also, you know, how this is implemented. Oh, I can see how this works. I can see how that works. I know I, it, it helped me with my understanding of the Go AST and working with that yeah. too. I mean, that is the, let's say, implementation. You can peek under the hood of a language, but, you know, like configuration languages, for example, like once you... You know, I think after you went through the book, you can write a any parser or a Toml parser or something. You know, maybe not YAML because that seems to be like the abyss of whatever people think up. But it's the JavaScript of formatting, <laughs> JavaScript yeah. of uh, configuration files. So you suddenly see all of these different things as problems that are, that are now solvable. Like your reach gets much wider. You know, you can suddenly implement stuff that you didn't even maybe dare to think about implementing before. Just to give you another example, you know, configuration files was one, templating languages, queries. Like if you're writing a sort of, let's say, database, not everybody does this, <laughs> but database, for example, has queries, needs to parse the queries, needs to put them in some kind of uh, structured form to interpret or compile or whatever, do something with them. At work, for example, I work at Sourcecraft. We have we build a search engine for code, uh, and you can search for code and you put in queries, right? So these also need to get parsed, and then you send them to a database, and that also parses the queries. And I looked at the code of how this database does it, and it's surprisingly similar, right? It's in the end, it's a bunch of functions that build up a tree, so to say, and then it gets interpreted and. Before I got into parsing and parsing programming languages, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. And this is like another tool in your toolbox that you can hopefully pull out when you need it. So that is the, the first answer I wanted to give. The second one was what you said, Matt, that it helps with learning that after you have this programming language implemented, you can add a bunch more stuff that Matt said in, in Slack. And 
I just want to add to that that it's so much fun to do that once you have a language or an interpreter, whatever, running, adding little bits and pieces. You know, it sounds really like I'm exaggerating, but it is nearly boundless creativity. Like you can add a lot of different stuff to your language. And the, the nice thing or fun thing about developing a language is, you know, compared to web applications, which is my background, you don't need a database. You don't need an internet connection. You don't need a second database. You don't need a huge build process. It's really like making stuff up in the air. Like you have a text file, you write stuff in a text file, and then on the other end, you get hopefully output or something. But it's re it's a really fun thing to work on and develop. I found the same thing when I first wrote my first interpreter because it, it's such a good way to flex your like TDD muscles because it, mm. they, they have no dependencies. You're just writing a, a, a string of something. You can try out new cases very, very easily. So you can really learn not just how to write interpreters, how to write compilers, but how to write really good tests that don't have dependencies on other things. Yeah. And it's a great time to also flex fuzzing muscles too, right? Because this is string input and you don't want things to crash and you want things to at least be able to report an error if something's wrong and hopefully report where that error is as well. Hang on, I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> error handling. <laughs> testing. I was just going to say, please don't run a fuzzer over the code we write in the book. Like it, that, That's not going to end in a good thing. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to break on like the fourth try or something. So the thing I really liked or the thing that I got the most out of from the book and it's what we're going to definitely want to hear from Tim about too is just about parsers in general you know whether you write an interpreter at the end or a compiler or whatever just writing parsers can be incredibly useful for all sorts of stuff so for example we've got um, at gopher guides we have a parse a markdown parser we use that splits up our markdown so we can then do all sorts of things with it. We can rejigger it and make nicer slides or format it out in different ways. Um, so that's not a language. It's not something we, we really, you know, that, that's that even that big. It's not an interpreter. It's not a compiler, but we wrote a parser because we needed to, to break apart this file format. And so just having that ability and knowledge of how that works to write something that simple is incredibly useful. So as a case, you don't have to write a templating package. You don't have to write a programming language. You can still make use of parsers for a yeah. ton of things. Well, I think probably a lot of people have written some version or some kind of parser before. I know I have. Mm -hmm. And what happens is it works brilliantly for the specific case that I need it for. And then later I think, oh, th that'd be great. I'll add that. And if you haven't structured it properly, if you haven't, you know, the book follows these patterns that are well tested. The ones I did didn't. I was just kind of trying to figure it out myself. And it became so frustrating. I basically frisbeed, I wanted to frisbee my laptop into the sea. That's how bad it was. So having the actual structure properly, you know, parsing properly, like simple things like knowing when you're in a string, like because things change when you're in a string. Yeah. You know, so things like that, which if you're just splitting strings and doing some basic parsing, just sort of hand coding it, that's the stuff that gets really tricky. So yeah, I love the fact that these are tried and tested techniques and they're now available to everyone uh, in the first instance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop promoting 
Could someone on Slack, if anyone didn't like his books, could you get in touch, please? Because uh, it's been a bit... We want to make sure this is a nice, balanced show. Well, you can throw shade at me if you want. <laughs> are we just are we trying to throw shade at Torsten? Because, I, I mean, we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't really have to. Oh, that's a drag. Can we talk about pegs? What's pegs? I think we should talk about pegs now. We could, yeah, I think that was a good... That. We talked about parsers. I think that's a great introduction. And I'd love to hear Torsten's take on them as well. Tim. Tim Raymond is sure. with us. Uh, Tim will be speaking next week at Gopher Palooza. By the way, I'm doing Matt's NPR voice. Just uh, trying to <laughs> fit right in there with him. Uh, so Tim will be presenting next week at Gopher Palooza, where it'll also be his birthday. Uh, and he will be talking about pegs, which are parser expression grammars. Correct, Tim? Yeah. Why don't you tell us what that holiday treat's all about? <laughs> so pegs, is, as Mark said, are, are parsing expression grammars. It's a language for building parsers automatically. It's a way of doing code generation. If you've read any other kind of like parsing stuff, you might have heard of things like Bison and these other kinds of parser generators. I find pegs are nice because they follow closely to the kinds of parsers that you'd, you would build by hand. But I find that once you've written that first parser by hand, which, which is what I recommend everyone do. Like, oh, absolutely. Like just before you even, <laughs> just so you even try pegs. It. Yeah. Try writing one by hand so that way you can learn that there's there's no magic going on here. But a peg can help you make a lot of ground very quickly when you're trying to build a new language or when you're trying to interpret a language that, that are just trying out new ideas for. And is it like a definition language then? Is it some kind of, or is it like a configuration language? How, how does it actually work in practice? Because presumably you have to sort of mention, okay, these are the keywords and I'm going to have integers or I'm going to, you know, how does it look? Well, so when you're writing out a, a parser by hand, you would ordinarily draw out the, the grammar like, okay, we have a, a document and it's composed of like multiple different statements or something like that. Pegs let you actually just write that string out. Like document uh, produces a like multiple statements and then when that rule actually matches, then you can run some custom Go code for that section. So it'll, it allows you to have these little hooks into different parts of where the grammar matches different things within the text that it's processing. Right. So maybe kind of give a visual thing. So let's say... Mark, it is a podcast. Please remember that. I know. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, my doodles are apparently not going to help anybody in the audience. <laughs> let's try to do a mental... a mental. Also, please put some clothes on. We're going to learn in a safe space here, Matt. Yeah. Okay. Learning in a safe space. Okay. Uh, I'll be quiet then. Close your eyes, light a candle, and picture <laughs> mentally in your mind an empty .peg file. Um, no, but what you would do is in there, like, so uh, if you take, say, uh, the idea of declaring variable, you know, var a int, right? Let's use something that we all kind of know, right? Var a int, you know, in that peg file, you'd say, okay, well, if I see this, I'm going to define a key world code var, and if I see that, and it's followed by this set of alphanumeric characters, let's say, right? You know, a through z and zero through nine, then that is, you know, what we can constitute as an identifier, then you have an int, right, uh, afterwards, you know, the type. So you would write out a thing that says, I'm going to create a var rule, and it's going to look like this. If it sees the word var, followed by what I declare as an identifier match, followed by a type match, followed by a new line, right, that rule is going to get matched. And in that rule, you do something and go, right? You return something. So 
and you'd probably return like something that handles variable declarations in your language. Yeah, you could you could return a struct. You could log something out. So if you were just building a, a tool that could highlight things, you could print out the thing that was even matched with different highlighting. You have access to what was actually matched by the the peg. So at, at that point, you can do anything that you want, really. Do they get difficult to follow, though? Do they, do they grow quite big quite quickly? They can, and we've actually been working on a, a newer version of Plush. Um, oh, we have, have we, Tim? Uh, uh, so you're really just stealing my thunder? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. I did. I, I stole your thunder, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in, in so doing, we found that it actually Mark found that it's probably better to like try to move as quickly as possible out of the peg into actual Go code because it is generated code. So things like Go imports don't exactly work like at all. <laughs> so to have certain facilities that we're used to writing Go code, we've just found that it's useful to have like certain support Go files along with it. So unfortunately, when you're writing these pegs, all you get is empty interfaces, right? So the rule matches, and what you're given back is a bunch of empty interfaces that represent the matches of that rule, right? And so since you write these things in a .peg file, it's not a Go file, and it's just poor to work with, right? So you kind of have to immediately take these empty interfaces off and do something with them. That's probably the biggest downside I found with them. They can get a bit hard to follow, like you just sometimes get a bit lost in the details, but overall each rule itself, if you break down and look at a rule, they're very, very simple and they're very well-defined, right? If you see if followed by parentheses, followed by this stuff in the middle, it's these things, right? And do it, handle it this way. And it's remarkable how, like Tim said, how quick you can make progress with it. Hmm. So it just outputs text then. The peg doesn't know that it's Go it's generated. The peg is text, yeah. And yeah. then you run a tool like Pigeon over it. And Pigeon, parses, ironically, parses the peg. <laughs> and then it spits out a .go interpretation of that as a parser. Oh. I mean, it's giant and it's huge and whatever. It's auto-generated code. It's auto-generated yeah. code. Now, I've heard that it's not as good as the one you would handwrite yourself, but I know it's better than the one I would handwrite myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends whose hand it is. Well, that's exactly yeah. it. I think, yeah. you know, I think Torsten will agree, you know, understanding these things is great and knowing them is very useful, but we're not all language designers. Yeah. And we're not all parser experts. And, we're, you know, and unless you want to be, you're not going to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Tim said this uh, as your first parser, he recommends you write your own. And I 100% agree. Mm -hmm. As in, when I was looking for, you know, Googling how to write a parser for a program language or something, you will find people saying, don't worry about it, just use a parser generator mm. or something like Yak, Bison, Antler. All of which I couldn't understand, by the way. Exactly. That's what I'm about to say. That I understood your book. I did not understand those. <laughs> <laughs> what these take as input is a grammar, like uh, you know, BNF, uh, backwards now form, eBNF, the extended version of that. And I found it really hard to just write a grammar like this, or even understand what it does or what it should do without having written a parser. But once you wrote a recursive descent parser, you look at these grammars and you go. Oh, now I can see how you can create, you know, the parser from this. And then yeah. you you kind of cherish what it abstracts, basically. 
And then you can get into this whole, you know, like parsing, the theory of parsing is a whole world unto itself. And I, I dare not enter it <laughs> or speak about it. Yeah, but you do a great job of explaining it in human terms uh, in the book, though, which is, <laughs> no, it, it, it's like I said, it, you know, I just said, it, unless you want to be an expert, you're not going to be. But it, it's, it's no good for dogs, though. You wouldn't recommend it if a dog... Uh, my dog loves well, it. Well, I've had dogs write me emails saying... Ringo has written like four languages now. The, the dog can't, can't stop yeah. himself. He's crazy with the book. He's got the compiler book in his crate at night. He's just flipping yeah. through a little pause. Yeah. Most dogs like the second book much more. Yeah, I would agree. He went for the compiler yeah. book totally. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Something about the bite code, maybe? Ooh, he's done a joke. Thank you. Dad Jokes 101, everybody. <laughs> That's a good joke. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. Manage and secure remote access to any database, any server, on-prem or in the cloud, and environments. They make it easy for DevOps teams to enforce the security and controls InfoSec teams require. So if your engineers need access, you need StrongDM. So what can StrongDM do for your team? First off, more control, less hassle. Grant or revoke access to any database or server in one command. Use your SSO to manage access to every database, every server and environment. Second, total visibility. StrongDM upgrades your audit logs, log every permission change, every query, every SSH, and every RDP command and know who issued those changes. And of course, faster SOC 2 compliance easily enforce access controls and instantly answer auditors' questions. Head to strongdm.com slash go time to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com slash go time. So does the compiler book follow on from the interpreter book then? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a sequel, oh. which is kind of hard to explain to a technical audience as in, yeah, <laughs> it's a sequel. Like you end on the last page of the first book and then you open a second one. And admittedly, the on. monkey language was taken hostage at the end of the first book. So I can understand yes. why people wanted the sequel. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to it, know what happened to Monkey too. Why do people struggle to understand that, Torsten? Because it seems, seems like an extremely simple concept. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sequel. I don't know. I don't oh. know. Like, I people ask me, do I need to read the first one before I start the second one? Which is, yeah, if you think of, you know, the titles do not maybe give it away that it they kind of build on each other. But they do. They use the same code base. And, you know, yeah, you can read the second one without having read the first one. But what you then have to do is you have to treat the things we built in the first book as black boxes, mm. which is kind of not what the books are about. You can read the second one and say, okay, they apparently have a parser here. They have an AST package. They have object model or something. I'm going to ignore this and just focus on the bytecode and the VM. You can do that, but I haven't wrote them this way, so there might be stuff missing. So I do not recommend it. And, right. and when's the prequel come out? Can't wait. The prequel? Yeah. Um, like Baby Monkey? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. There's a lot of stuff you could add to both books, I guess. You know, as we said, you can extend a programming language in any dimension you want. 
and you know like add you know more to the syntax add more to the functionality improve the implementation make it faster make it more efficient whatever but the limitation here is how do you explain it in a book like when i started writing the first one i thought yeah i'm going to do interpreter and then you know vm bytecode in the same book and then i started writing and then i realized i'm not going to make it to the end of this what are you, the Stephen King of technical authors? You know, you know <laughs> a thousand piece masterwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part one. And, and, yeah. and at the end, it's just a giant spider. Yeah. <laughs> it's real letdown. So the compiler book then, it takes the, the language. The language can be interpreted from its text. So there's input that right. is text gets interpreted. So then you understand what that says. And so then what's the process then for that to turn into something that can be executed and compiled or compiled mm. and then executed? So let's go back to what I said earlier about computer only understands a single language. And the goal is to, you know, have the computer understand what you're saying. And just as with humans, and I know I'm stretching this metaphor a bit, there's two ways to kind of make someone understand the language they don't speak. You could, for example, listen to what another person is saying and write that down and translate it into the language your friend can understand and then pass that on to them and then they can read it. Mm -hmm. Or you can, you know, translate on the fly, interpret, so to say, and just listen to what the other person is saying sentence by sentence and then, you know, speak it back to your friend. Mm -hmm. If we translate that on the computers... Interpreting means taking another language the computer does not understand as input and depending on what is being said, you execute or you immediately run the things this language tells you to do in a language that the computer can understand. I don't know if that makes sense, but it mm. is, it, it's kind of what's happening. And when you compile you actually translate. You take the input and translate it to another language and then pass that on to the computer. If you compile a Go code to a binary, that's exactly what happens. You take the Go code, the compiler takes it in and produces machine code the computer and the operating system can understand. There's a bunch of different Go REPLs, I think. There are a bunch of them. Yeah, and what they do is... Well, I'm actually not sure how they implement it, come to think of it, but what they could <laughs> well, do... I, I could tell you how a lot of them work, which is to compile and run on the back end. They take the statement, compile yeah. it, and write yeah, it. That's exactly what I didn't want to hear to explain this. <laughs> because you could, since Go is a compiled language, you could, some limitations aside, you could just as well interpret it by reading it line by line and then, you know, yeah. oh, the next line says, you know, format print line or something. Let's print a line instead of translating that into another instruction that tells the computer to print a line. And, you know, uh, you're going to ask me, I bet, when should you do what? No, we weren't. Uh, but I prepared <laughs> notes. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, if you prepared notes. <laughs> well, thank you for asking. So when should you do one or the other? If you translate it into another language the computer can understand, that means you can hand it off and then there's no translation involved anymore when executing the program. 
right? You translate it once, which means you kind of front load the cost of translation to a point in time where you're willing to pay it. If you're compiling Go code on your machine, you're happy to wait a few seconds because that makes the program run faster later on when it needs to run on the server. If, for example, you're not willing to pay that cost, you could just as well say, no, this needs to run. I don't want to wait for it. You know, let's say you have a scripting language or bash, like a shell language, where you want it to run immediately. Then you don't compile it and you interpret it on the spot, line by line, basically. And, you know, answering your follow-up question. <laughs> Do we need to be here for this or can we just go <laughs> while you interview yourself? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I've got it all figured out. Just uh, mute your microphone. <laughs> so if you're willing to pay the, the cost up front, then that means you can also do stuff that wouldn't be feasible to do when you run it at the same time that you're interpreting it. For example, optimizations, right? If you're compiling a huge program, let's say 100,000 lines of code, there's a bunch of optimizations you can do. For example, removing duplicate code, inlining functions, and so on. These optimizations cost time, they cost computation power. And if you have to translate and do those optimizations while running the program, that costs. You need to somehow make that happen without you know, paying the performance penalty that would be incurred on the running program. But if you're you know, willing to pay this cost upfront, you can do that. And you know, as a tying it back to Go, the Go compiler you know, I might be wrong on this, but I heard people on the Go team say that they really care about the speed of the compiler. So that's why they don't add too many optimizations or something. It's a trade-off, right? Mm. They, they're really conscious of that trade-off as in, yeah, we could put more optimizations into the compiler. That would mean, you know, they could spend more time on making the code run faster, but that would also mean that the compilation process gets slower, which would be, you know, a penalty we all have to pay since we, you know, all of us kind of cherish that how fast uh, the compiler is. Yeah, but you could make it configurable, couldn't you? And just have a <laughs> one that builds quickly for no optimizations for dev, and then when you want to put it into production, yeah. you do the slow yeah, I one. Guess you could, just, yeah. You, do you, that. you could tweak your JVM settings. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's a burn. <laughs> You could, right? Other <laughs> compilers have this. They have optimization levels. There's even, I learned about this last year, there's supercompilers, mm. uh, which is awesome name for, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, it's an awesome name. Yeah, they, they wear capes and have big letters on exactly, their chests. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So they, they, yeah, they fly much faster than any other compiler. But what supercompilers do, and again, and this, you know, is valid for everything I say, I might be wrong here, <laughs> but what supercompilers do is, they basically spend all of the time they run on trying different optimizations. Oh. It's a thing you kick off and have run like a CI process. On everything you push, they just run for hours and hours and hours and try to find optimizations and test those optimizations. And then they come up with a, a gold image and say, this is the fastest possible we can make this. Wow, and and, so and games companies use this for... They call it gold builds, I think. So when the game is finished and it's ready to be shipped, they take the binary or you know assembly language and put it into a supercompiler. And that supercompiler looks at this and tries to reorder the code, remove duplicate code and different combinations, and it runs for weeks 
to come up with a faster version of the program. That's awesome. And also, they can shoot lasers out of their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I just give my code to Tim. Yeah. <laughs> Tim's your super compiler. Exactly. He really is. Well, Tim, Tim is my go-to CS expert. Hmm. He first introduced me to Pegs, for example, earlier this year uh, when we were heading down to Gotham Go. So that's kind of, you know, I always love having Tim around for that because he, he really is my super compiler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm really excited, honestly, just to be on the call with Torsten because I'm uh, such a big fan with Plush. Non taken. Like <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was about to say, and not a big pleasure to be on the call with Matthew, as oh, always. Okay. That negative has confused me. Which, by the way, folks, I am the only person who can, who's allowed to call him Matthew. Yeah, and even you, that is definitely not allowed. But yeah, well, <laughs> sorry, mate. It's, it's a syntax a error. No, it's a thing now. Sorry. I'm going to have to write a peg <laughs> to pass my name to make sure it's acceptable. Come on, that's so, it's a computer podcast. Those kinds of jokes are fine. Are they, though? <laughs> are they really? <laughs> so I'm uh, excited to be on the podcast with Torsten and Tim because. As Tim kind of mentioned earlier, we are working on a replacement for Plush. Thank you, Matt. What's it called? Um, called Lush. Clever. Is it smaller? It, it is. Well-ish, I guess. Mm. But we're using Hopefully. a peg for it. Does it smell really strong when you walk past it on the high street? Does that translate? That is a very English joke. I got <laughs> it. I got it. Okay. It is very English. I, Sorry, I got there's it. A, there's a soap shop called Lush, and it frankly stinks. But that was the joke. <laughs> it does, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They all do. And so, but it's a superset of Monkey X, well, you know, of what we ended up using for Plush. So it cool. supports all of Plush plus more. It's kind of like a interpreted version of Go without types, right? Basically. Basically. Yeah. yeah. But it's just been interesting to approach the same problem from these two different angles as well. Because it's essentially the same thing. So Lush is going to be a scripting, embeddable scripting language that also compiles to Go. So you can imagine as like, a, you know, if you're using it in your application, you write HTML files and then they get compiled to .go files, which is pretty nice. Does it do it in the same way the standard library does, where you actually, at runtime, you compile it? Or would you pre-compile it in some way? Yes, it, it is a pre-compilation <laughs> step where we take a Lush script and we can generate a .go file from it mm. and kind of work through it. But like I said, just the ideas and looking at the problem from first writing a parser and Lexer and AST and, and all of that, and then writing something like a peg where if you go to gobuffalo slash lush, you can even see the peg there. Um, by the way, it's not ready for production. Tim needs to make expressions work well. Yes. Um, <laughs> but it's an interesting way to kind of look at it from these two different perspectives of one of this kind of like, I am going to minutely kind of churn through each bit of this file and, and understand it and keep track of that and process that on my own so I know exactly what's happening. And then to another way is to, to use the peg and just kind of turn that over to somebody else or to a code generation tool and say, let me try to abstractly define what this looks like and what this is going to be um, and hope that it generates the right thing on the other side. I don't think I could have done it without understanding parsers first. I really don't. Mm. And I've used pegs now for a bunch of things, but I, yeah, if you don't understand it, I don't think it's, I don't know. <laughs> Tim, you sell them. It would be a much uh, slower process just because... <laughs> Just like Torsten was was saying earlier, you can really appreciate what the auto-generated code is doing for you because it's doing it in such a way that your 
basically generating your own recursive descent parser. So you write these in like a recursive descent way. And yeah, so with, without like the prior context of having written one, you would be reading a lot more documentation than you would otherwise have to. But you also have the compilation step in it, right? As in, if you output Go code. Oh, that's a different thing. That's just the benefit of this language that we're working on, the tool that we're working on. <laughs> that's just one of its features. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you said I couldn't have written this without understanding parses. Mm -hmm. And my question would be, do you think you've, you could have written it without knowing anything about compilation or kind of getting into this topic? So I, I know nothing about compilation. I see. Question answered, yeah. I haven't read your <laughs> second book. I'm not going to lie to you. I, we, I said that at the very beginning of the show, so I don't feel bad about that. I didn't read the second book. So again, Lush is an embeddable scripting language. One of the things that it looks so much like Go, because Monkey looks an awful lot like Go if you took away types in a lot of places. Um, and certainly Plush does, and, and Lush takes it even further. So to take that and to generate Go from it is not all that difficult. It's just a matter of kind of implementing the right formatter, you know, right print package to just say, okay, this is an if node. How do we print an if node in Go, right? And some of the stuff is even easier than that. So you can take a lush map and all you got to do to translate to Go code is just take the underlying map and run it through sprintf and you get back the Go, you get the actual the correct Go code on the other side, right? So that's one of the features coming out of it. But it's, yeah, it's not a proper compilation step because we just, it's more, another code generation step. Yeah. And then that obviously would get compiled. I mean, you could say most code generation it does look a little bit like compilation, <laughs> especially in this case, because we're... Or transpiling, like, I think is probably the word you'd probably want to use, isn't it? It's, you can transpile it to go, is that right? Yeah. It's all compilers to me. Yeah, it's exactly. all it's all it's compilers all the way down. Yeah, <laughs> I think I don't. I, I think the translation compilation distinction doesn't hold up for longer than two minutes in right. any. <laughs> well, so like you said, everything eventually has to get compiled or transpiled down to a, a language the computer can understand. Yeah. So Go yeah. eventually has to be transpiled down <laughs> to that or compiled. It's like yeah, I agree. There, I never understand yeah. which words to use. You kind of touched upon what I was getting at that you said, you know, it's just printing stuff. It's just formatting stuff. And I feel this is the same thing that Matt mentioned earlier about parsing, where you start out writing your custom thing specific to your problem. And then once you know kind of the, the general or more abstract pattern behind it, you can enhance that and make it better and make it work for more use cases. And I had the same experience with compilation where you, you start out, oh, wait, I just have to walk along these nodes and just print stuff. And then, you know, you, you go from there and then you realize, oh, instead of printing stuff immediately, I should probably turn it into another thing, another data structure that I can then reorder more easily or something. And then I can turn this into something else. And only then I will, you know, output strings. And then suddenly you have, you know, invented an, an intermediate language and a, right. a proper compilation step or something. There are all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I've, I came across, you know, kind of working on this as I'm working through the Go step of all this. And it's things like, for example, uh, Lush or Plush, whatever, can have unused variables. So can't Monkey, mm. right? Uh, and unused variables are fine. They're not fine in Go. So how do you output that into some Go code if, without knowing if the variable is going to be used? Nice, yeah. Later on, right? So let me guess, you... you 
print the variable and then immediately do underscore equals that You're looking variable. at the, the site, aren't you? No, no, no. Is that it really? I can see the reflection in your glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> But that's that's exactly what we do, right? Yeah, you know, we yeah. de- declare the variable and then immediately do underneath it underscore equals a, right? Yeah. And then that, nice. you know, so you can't just say, oh, I'll run it through Sprintf all the time. Because like yeah. I said, there are these moments where if you just printed it out, it sure, it's valid Go code for that one line, but not valid in a bigger context. Yeah. Do you do that for every variable you come across, or just outputting the the Go code right now? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I, again, that that part yeah. of it's not not finished yet. It's going to be the end goal, I think. Because I was going to say, if you can detect which one's not unused to output the underscore equals that you can, <laughs> then you're already there, right? You can you're already <laughs> omit <exactly>. it. <laughs> we we almost could if we had like another intermediate. Layer, no. you could. Yeah, no. There you go. You can do a little da- data flow I analysis. And, yeah, yeah. No. perfection is the enemy of progress, though. You know which book to read, Mark. Right? Yeah, I've, I've heard. <laughs> nice. I've heard good things. This, this is the one problem of of knowing <laughs> that you can compile a thing. It's like, oh well, we could have just another like intermediate layer, and yeah, just keep yeah, like, yeah. oh, we can do more. Yeah. And- <laughs> I thought you were going to say this is one of the problems of working with Mark. Oh yeah, <laughs> wouldn't even make the top fifty. That well, no, not even <laughs> close. <laughs> So far down the list. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new Elastic agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org slash Kubernetes. Again, gocd.org slash Kubernetes. How exciting is it though when as you make progress through it when suddenly it starts to seem like it's intelligent like you know when you start to uh, like as soon as you have something like recursion or something working when you can suddenly start to see surprisingly clever behavior happen that must be a kind of thrilling to see that that sort of progress does that do you know what I mean oh, yeah yeah Speaking between us, it's super exciting, right? It really is. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Matt, you know, I was, when I was working on Plush earlier this year, when I first started working, I was tweeting, I was sending the text messages all the time, going, "Oh my god, look at this! I can't believe we got this!" Like, it has Go routine support because yeah. it, it was so easy to add Go routine support to a scripting language, right? Exactly. That's amazing. Where, yeah, the whole yeah. script does a sync wait, so when you do a Go, it automatically adds it and manages it and everything like that. But it was super easy to do especially with the peg. It was just looking for that keyword and then saying if it's followed by a function, you know, do yeah. something with it. And yeah, the stuff you can do when you start learning parsers and pegs blew my mind. 
For me, that was uh, when I had closures working. Mm. Mm. When you realize, oh, now, you know, it actually works. Like it's a step-by-step, you know, approach to solution. Like you start out with functions, then you start out, oh, functions are values. I can pass them around. And then you go, oh, closures are functions that are passed around, but they carry the environment with them that they closed over. And once you have that working, you go, Nice. Now I can, you know, any any scheme or list person will tell you once you have closures, you can build object orientation or something. Then you can just, yeah. you know, build well, constructive functions that return a closure that wraps around some state and, you know, mm. returns other functions and all of that stuff. And that's really, really cool. That's that a lot is, of yeah. Because it sounds so hard. It's kind of beautiful in how little you need to bootstrap a system. And I'm on the side, I'm working on a scheme compiler, a scheme to x86 compiler. And it's not nearly finished. It's endless, basically. But it can do a lot of stuff already. And it's really nice to see that there's certain milestones you reach where you can leverage what you built before. So you put in a few built-ins or primitives, um, you know, equals, comparing stuff, type checks. And then... You can build higher level constructs that leverage these things. And now suddenly you have much more functionality available. And then you can use those higher level constructs and build more of those. Yeah, exactly. And now I feel like I'm kind of close that if I put more work, you know, slash time into it, you could make it so that it can bootstrap itself, compile itself. And that is. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're talking. This yeah, only this group of people would have like a respect for. Oh yeah, <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine if the monkey language ends up being Skynet. That is literally all I dream about every <laughs> night. When you're doing so, the thing you know, going back to pegs because that's what I've been working with a lot recently. And we talk about closures. One, I found that because of the recursive parser builds, so the send parser, it, you just it kind of falls out. It's actually fairly easy to do this and kind of pass around these contexts and. You know, for example, we uh, Lush supports var a, you know, um, let a and a colon equals, right? Mm. And they all mean different things. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't think they necessarily mean that in the monkey language, but certainly in Lush they do. So, you know, let lets you write over an existing variable or declares a new one in that scope. Var declares a new variable, but if one exists already, it errors, right? And then a colon equal does the same thing you'd expect to do as a go. But carrying around the information around with those and, and, and checking to see whether it's currently in scope or out of scope becomes so much easier. And it doesn't involve a whole lot of effort <laughs> to start mm. typing those sorts of things in. How do you decide about that feature then? Did that come, that particular, the two flavors of having var and let? Well, let was there to let people move from plush to lush. Right. So it's backwards compatibility. Yeah, it supports both like things like let. It also supports the monkey style for, um, which is like four parentheses or brackets, depending on which country you're in, variable in whatever. Um, it supports that, but it also supports range statements, just like in Go, right? So, you know, Lush is moving more towards looking like an interpreted, not, you know, dynamic Go versus a what monkey necessarily was originally. But I had, I wanted to make sure I could support all of those plush. <laughs> templates <laughs> as they get moved forward. So yeah, understanding what those were, obviously a colon equal and var 
stole from the standard library, right? <laughs> like that's easy. But the let was a much more difficult decision and had to kind of look around and see what other people use for something like a let. I went with, I can overwrite or set. That's what let would let you do. Because var doesn't let you do that, nor does colon equal. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So that, that's how I ended up with, that's what let would let you do. And it fit best with what plush or monkey would do, which is pretty much let you do anything. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, right? How seemingly tiny decisions such as these have wide-reaching consequences. Mm. And then you suddenly, uh, you know, um, feel how much pressure language designers are under when somebody opens a ticket and says, why can't you add this or something? And you go, but if I add this, that would mean, you know, that you could also do this. And I'm sure, you know, people well-versed in the theory of this can, you know, come up with a formal thing and say, if we add this, it actually has these ramifications. But when you think it through manually, it's really enlightening to see like, okay, if I add the ability to, you know, define two functions that call each other recursively or something, then I can suddenly implement all of this and all of that or, you know, delayed binding. Like uh, you can call a function in your function that hasn't been declared before, which is what this, you know, two functions calling each other recursively is about. Then, yeah, you, you can do loops basically or something in another function or return a function that blah, blah, blah. It's, it's crazy. It's also interesting because we think about like the conversations we have in the community about generics and stuff. And a lot mm. of people just think of it as whether they want that feature or not. Not yeah. really what, what does it mean to implement that feature and what's the, what are the ramifications of that? Yeah, that I've got to say, this is probably one of the few, templating is one of those places where I'd love to have generics. <laughs> it's one of the few places where I really need it. And again, if you look at Plush, like it's got this giant switch statement for how to handle the output um, which yeah. was just I did not like at all, um, and just mm. getting rid of that. And like a type um, switch, is it? Or yeah, basically. Yeah. And if like, well, if it's a func stringer, do this. If it's uh, mm. text HTML or you know, HTML, do you know, do this, right? If it's a, a slice, do this. You know, just all of those. There's mm -hmm. a few places too where we have to deal with like empty interface and then like a slice of empty interfaces, which we then have to like, uh, yeah. Whenever you're dealing with parsers and yeah, Torsten will tell you, it's basically all empty yeah. interfaces. Yeah. It's a real yeah. drag. But would generics help with the parsers then? Would you be able to have, have it strongly typed? Hmm, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Possibly. I, I don't know. Hmm. It would make, I would say, the type definitions of your AST smaller. Like you need less boilerplate because then you could just, you know, say here's an AST expression or something where the value is an integer. Here's an AST expression where the value is a string or something. But if it would, I don't know if it would make the parser itself smaller. Certain other language constructs like pattern matching, for example, or destructuring, that would make the code really concise. But in the end, you know, it all is if and else. <laughs> Everything's yeah. just a giant if-else statement at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all a go-to, right? At the end of the day. It's all good. <laughs> it'll be in, in go-to. We'll be fine. <laughs> what you said, Matt, about uh, generics, that's actually the, the thing that I thought of, that I sometimes feel people underestimate 
the consequences of adding a feature such as this. Like, of you know, yeah, you can use it to only implement map or reduce or fold whatever um, with generics. But what will this enable in the future? Which patterns will emerge? How will people use the language? What does it mean for all of the stuff that was already there? Like, will the stuff in the standard library become obsolete because people won't use it anymore because they can build their own stuff? How do you maintain that then? And all of that stuff, it's not an easy addition. And, you know, I don't want to get too political <laughs> on this really sensitive topic, but um, I kind of like how everybody's at the tweet button ready. <laughs> how the how the go team considers these trade offs? Yes, yes, I think so, and they, they do talk about it as well. Uh, they talk about yeah. the the cost really of of implementing these features. I think a lot of us kind of don't really do that with our own projects. It's common for for companies and for teams to just think their job is just adding features and there are consequences to everything you add into mm. that but um i think if if someone's been through your book that would give them that kind of uh, appreciation really f from when it comes to things like in the go language too yeah but also i feel in in your daily work most of us don't work on the parts of a system that are used by other parts. Like you often add stuff to a system. You don't necessarily work like Mark on a framework mm. or the underlying thing. Mm. But once you do, once you build those primitives, which are used by other parts of the system, you start to feel that any change you make to these primitives has a force multiplier attached. Mm -hmm. So a templating language, for example, like you have a bunch of built-in functions for example or uh, you know functionality that that comes with it if you change just a tiny bit of it you will see you know the changes amplified but if you just if you add features to a system and use primitives um you know you can easily do that which is the beauty of a well-designed system that you know adding stuff does not have a lot of consequences for the rest of the system but once you change the underlying layer you know, there's the consequences. Yes. I think we do We do kind of build almost primitive. Whenever we build an abstraction, which is something that we all love doing, it's the programmer's best day when you implement something and think, oh, I could do this in a slightly abstract way and unlock all this possibility. Uh, and it's such a great feeling that we're, we're kind of, I think, hooked on that. And then when the second time comes along, it doesn't quite fit, but it's close enough. We'll just add a few extra. It's a couple, it's a couple of little tweaks. It's a little bit of configuration. Don't worry about it. And then the third time, and that's not really doesn't doesn't really belong there either. And you end up with uh, Frankenstein abstractions and stuff like that. So, yeah, that that sort of thinking, I think, it, it applies not just if you're writing parsers. I think it applies across the board. And also, second best day, deleting code, right? Yeah. Oh, I love deleting code. Maybe the other way around. I like deleting oh. code more than abstractions. Yeah, I love deleting well, code. One mm. one thing I found writing parsers too is that sometimes they enable you to delete code. Like yes. The, the first parser that I wrote was actually a uh, formalized version of a ad hoc informally specified language that was parsed with regexes, and it was actually a templating language. He's as talking well. that about one I wrote. 
Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I was going to say, it sounds like that's in every code base around the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he's talking about something uh, I wrote years ago. Yeah, You're talking about yeah. Bry. Yeah, I'm talking about Bry. <laughs> um, okay. Well, Awkward. So, okay, you can talk mm. about my past mistakes. Oh, okay. I certainly okay. do. <laughs> I'll talk about yours. Don't forget, it's Tim's birthday. So, as, as time went on, more features got added to it, and the grammar of it changed slightly between different, like, parts of this templating language. And so by writing a more formalized grammar of it, I could parse all of these things and then do almost something similar to go fumped where I actually removed a whole bunch of things. And then I could just start deleting code from the <laughs> official parser because none of those rules would none ever rules match ever again. again. Yeah. But I also had nice. complete control over not only the parser, the language, I also had control over all of its usage. So in contrast to most programming languages where you don't know how people might go to use it, if you mm. do have control over <laughs> over every usage of it, you can have a great ability to change things. Yeah, I, you know, the, it's, you talk about the formatting. You're the one who actually even said said it to me that if I use the peg and I lay things out in a certain way, then fumpting just falls out of it. And it kind of falls out of it automatically. So there's a lush fumpt tool that will fumpt your lush scripts. And it's super easy because these, you know, you've got this nice node, you've got this nice parser, these types know what they're supposed to look like. And just like what the Go does, it allows you to just kind of print back a much nicer formalized version of the thing you've already parsed. Mm. Um, Clean up code, you can delete code, like like you were saying. Yeah, it's, it's really, really nice. Fun stuff to work with. Torsten, if our dear listeners wanted a copy of your, one of your books... Where yeah. would they? Where should they get it from? Interpreterbook.com and compilerbook.com. Or uh, if you want the paperback version, uh, Amazon. Right. I now, think. What's the address for Amazon? Is it a website? It's or? it's uh, HTTP colon okay. slash Hang slash. Take, take notes. Slow down. So it's not slow secure. Slow it's not down. secure. What, are they forward? Are they backward? Are they? Does everybody say backward and they're forward or forward and back? I'm confused. Maybe okay, you can put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Link it in show notes. Amazon.com. Yeah. Amazon.com. Uh, Online shop. Also dot co dot UK. Oh, they've got one there too? They're expanding. Yeah. It was wide. Good for them. Good for yeah. them. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a startup success story. That's fantastic. Yeah. Then uh, France, Italy, Germany. Wow. All over the place by now. All over the place. Are they in, is it just in English, though? The book or Amazon? No, it's just in yeah. English, yeah. Okay. I wouldn't dare to translate it to German. I honestly, when I talk about programming in German, it's, you know, 70% English words anyway, so. Right. They're, Amer- they're American English words, by the way. It's U.S. English is the language I computing. I was careful to not settle on one or the other, so I try to switch it up. I honestly forget while writing whether I used the British or the American. And I, I, you know, I knew that I was going to rile people up, but I was happy to do it. So, yeah, you're, you're just a regular old radical. <laughs> yeah. I, you're like, you're a punk rocker if there ever was one. Yeah. Sometimes I put a U yes. in color, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I use the Oxford comma, sometimes I just use no comma at all. Uh-oh. <laughs> Which, for a book on interpreting and parsing text, is is actually quite ironic. <laughs> yeah, but it's also a nice exercise for the reader, right? Yeah. Couldn't you run monkey fumped on the book? And 
You actually, you don't want to know what the, my tool chain is. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, on that bombshell where Mark Bates has legitimately just said monkey thumped, <laughs> I, that is the end of the show, I'm afraid. Torsten, Tim, Mark, thank you very much. It's been excellent. Uh, on the next show, we're going to have Francesc Campoy is going to join us to talk about graph databases. That's going to be interesting, isn't it? So join us then. Uh, we'll see you then. Thank you. All right. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up. You'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows. Connect with other members of the community. Share stories. Share code. Share coffee recipes. Whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time. Find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, Rollbar, for helping us move fast and fix things. And Linode for hosting the ChangeLaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for changelawmaster in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.